0: Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Gouray, TJ Beeter, and Kathy Gouray. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts.
1: Happy National Taco Day to all our listeners. Go forth and celebrate. But before you do, we hope you stick around for an hour of Greyhounds Make Great Pets, where today on GMGP, we are talking more horse sense with our guest, horse trainer, jockey, and author Clint Goodrich. And we'll be discussing horse racing, current issues, as well as track closures in both horse and greyhound racing. But before we bring on our guest, I'd like to remind the Greyhound and Sighthound community that registration is now open for the Solvang Gathering, which is an annual event held in picturesque Solvang, California on January 9th through 12th, 2020. Solvang is a delightful place to be, as many of the hotels, wine tasting rooms, restaurants, and businesses are hound friendly. It's a weekend filled with sighthounds, greyhounds, and galgos, podenkos, oh my, whippets and iggies too, who all come together with their owners for an event that truly focuses on the hounds of the world. We hope you can join us. Be sure to like and follow the Solvang Gathering on Facebook and find out how to register. The Solvang Gathering Hounds of the World is sponsored by, you guessed it, greyhounds make great pets. Now enough babbling from me. Let's get this show started with your plucky GMGP host, Rory. What are you doing? Oh,
2: I was just finishing up my tacos that were delivered here to Rue One Studio because it's you just said it's I,
1: I understand that, but uh, where were mine? Did I don't even want to go there. Let's just start the okay, show.
2: let's just start the show. <gasps> but there's somebody that had a special event
1: this week. <gasps> That's right. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Engineer Aaron. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) You know, I think we're the ones that are humiliated, not him.
2: (laughs) He's a great engineer. He is, yes.
1: and, and he, he does a good job, and he, he keeps us in line as best he can. <laughs> well, there,
2: and there, there was another uh, anniversary this week. Um, there was. Back in 2011, there was an event in uh, West Virginia, and I, I just want to read something here. Um, it was an article, September 30th, 2011. According to investigators, and the investiga- investigators would have been the FBI, Thiel, that would be Carrie Thiel of Gray 2K, emailed a guy named Marshall Ray. Asking him to speak with an individual who would contact Ray soon. He is working with us on a special project, said Thiel, and then he put in Winky Face. (gasps) So it's the Winky Face anniversary. (gasps)
1: Gosh, we (laughs) were. Winky Face.
2: And also, (laughs) you know, here on GMGP, we did offer up for the debate. And apparently, Mr. Thiel has denied. Wanting to come on and debate, but now I did find um, this was posted in Mr. Thiel's blog from Wednesday, December 5th, 2012. This is not the first time that dog race promoters have tried to intimidate us and prevent the public from seeing what happens to greyhounds. Mr. Thiel, you seem to be worried about the public seeing these videos, but yet you do not want the public to hear you debate Mr. Parker. You seem to have some fear of it or whatever. Well, Mr. Thiel, since you apparently are suffering from a case of debate phobia, a fear of free and frank discussion, I'm happy to announce the debate is taking place as we have no fear of the public hearing an open and frank discussion right here on Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Next Friday, this channel, this time, Mr. Parker will have a chance to respond to the many comments attributed to Mr. Thiel in many of the blogs and articles that he has been quoted in. Now, Mr. Thiel, the invitation is still open for you to join and defend, and also if if you choose to call in. If you do call in, the format will then change to, you'll get to make a comment, Mr. Parker will then get a chance to respond, with you responding, Parker responding, and then Mr. Parker will get to do his comment and respond, respond, respond. And so mis- go ahead. If you speak truthfully, you have nothing to fear.
1: And Mr. Thiel, if you would like to actually participate live on our show, please contact Voice America and ask for our producer, Tacey.
2: Exactly. Now last week we had a really great show with uh on horses.
1: That we did. We had fun. I learned
0: stuff
1: and
2: it's actually um and you know me being involved as a commissioner. You uh, are? <laughs> <laughs> It it is its it's been kind of a, a remarkable journey for myself, um, learning a little more about the horses and getting to know the people because um, I knew a lot about the dog racing. Um, but I wanted to kind of continue this. And a couple of months ago, there was an article I had, I had popped up on my screen. It was titled Abandon. And I started reading it, and I was like, it really made me think because today so many people are blaming uh, the likes of PETA, Gray2K as the ones who have closed down tracks. But I really started thinking, it's like, really, how many of all the tracks, I'm more specific on the Greyhound side, how many tracks did they really close down? And really got to thinking about it. It was like, no, they didn't have much to do with most of these tracks that have closed down, so why? And our guest today, Clint Goodrich, he has spent 30 years in the thoroughbred uh, horse racing Clint was a jockey. No, I do want to talk to him about being a jockey because I've always found that fascinating. But I'll tell you, I just don't have the balls to, to get up on one of those horses and get in the <laughs> starting gate. Um, call me a chicken. I don't know. just I don't have the balls. He's also been a trainer, owner, breeder, and a buyer at sales. Uh, Goodrich had a somewhat erratic career as a jockey from 1977 to 1981 and again in the early 2000s. Uh, he was more well-known and successful as a trainer for the top clients, including Tartan Farms, F.A. Genter Stable, and John uh, Neurod. Clint, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, Roy. Thanks for having me. I'm good to be with you.
2: Um, now, I, I just got to ask, what was it like being a jockey? Because, um, again, I just, I just could—I I, I admire jockeys, but I know I just would not have the balls to get to get up on one of those horses and get in that starting gate and just go.
3: You know, it's it's a very unique uh, privilege to have had that of being a, a professional athlete in any sport. And it's something that is, uh, it's a lifestyle, it's a passion, it gets in your blood, and the competition of it can be uh, extraordinarily addictive over a period of time. And, and you know when you get involved in it that, uh, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be ups and downs. It's not going to be a straight line to the top. Uh, or or even success, because none of that is guaranteed, but it is, uh, it requires, uh, you know, a lot of courage, a lot of skill, a lot of dexterity, and it should really uh, require a lot of horsemanship. Yeah,
2: and I know uh, for me, uh, probably one of the most exciting things I've been privileged to do is, uh, I did it at both Turf Paradise and also Arizona Downs, is, would stand in an, an empty starting gate when they're getting ready to release the horses, and, the just the you could just feel the, the, the it was just so wonderful and the <laughs> excitement and then just hearing them when those horses go and then the jockeys all yelling and screaming and it was just so uh, remarkable I, for me it, I just found it fantastic and I, of course unfortunately I know not everyone would get to Get bad. that privilege, yeah. but, but that's as close as I'm going to get to getting in a starting box. <laughs> <pot.
1: laughs>
2: well, well, I tell you, you you've, you've got it just right. And, uh,
3: you, you know, one of the things when you're circling around behind the starting gate and you're waiting to be loaded and they're loading, you know, one at a time, two at a time, and you get loaded up and there's three or four more to go, and you, the, the, you know, the tension begins to build. And once they close the, uh, the the tailgates behind you, there's only one way home, and that's out the front. <laughs> <laughs> so once those starting gates are locked behind you, you're committed. There is no way home, there's no way out except forward, and when the gates crash open, it is like nothing I can actually describe uh, it is uh, It is a thunderous uh event that uh, i have never uh, I have never replicated in my life anywhere it's a, It's an amazing uh experience
2: yeah, it truly is now. Let's get a little uh, start diving in a few items here. There, um, the thoroughbred racing industry is, is seems to be s- suffering greatly right now from um, what a, some would say is poor racetrack management. Could you kind of maybe ele- start? A, let's just start diving right into that subject.
3: Well, one of my contentions, uh, Rory and Kathy, is 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 absolutely racetrack management has a major hand in the decline of the sport for decades horse racing was the only game in town absent you know Nevada and then as as time went on you know it became Atlantic City and then lotteries and then casino, riverboat gambling and then indian casinos and then the proliferation of the internet wagering access and simulcasting came along and then intertrack wagering came along and now you've got vetting uh, through Twin Spires and TVG and these other uh, satellite aspects. Well, racetrack management—they never—they never adapted. They never evolved. It's a culture, in my view. I have seen it since the first day I walked under the into the racing scene in the middle '70s, and there was an arrogance and a smugness about racetrack management from day one, from my view. And it never changed. It never, they never adapted to the changing landscape. All businesses need to adapt to the environment they find themselves in from day to day, week to week, year to year. And in this case, from decades to decades, it's never, they've never done it. They used to just doors open, the gates would, would ricochet back off and knock patrons down. People would step over them and they would flood into the, into the grandstand. Uh, Those days are over. And the competition is uh, extreme. You've got to protect your patrons. You've got to embrace your patrons. You've got to serve your customers an experience that makes them want to come back. You can't just sit back in your desk with your arms folded and your feet propped up and expect things to go on autopilot. You've got to take care of your, of your fan base. You've got to make them want to come back takeouts are too high, customer service is poor, uh, comfort is, is modest, admission is too high, parking is too high, food is not good. There's so many areas where racetrack management can could step in and start cultivating. They've lost several generations of potential fans and horse players to inertia, and you can't do that and survive. So it's an autopilot thing that, uh, you know, in my view, 10 or 15% is being, uh, you know, handled. The other 80, 85% is being just left to die uh, in the dustbin of history because no one is willing to do the hard work of marketing, of campaigning, of national marketing, local marketing, and embracing and cultivating fans again.
1: You know, that's, everything you said, Clint, I know you're talking about horse racing. I'm not as familiar with it as Rory is, however, everything you said also equally applies to the greyhound racing world.
2: Exactly. Um, I, I would just probably have ended it with, "Yeah, Amen, brother." No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, it is true. I, I just know on the gray, even on the greyhound side, there they lacked vision. Um, you, Ch- you, they yeah. didn't want to change. No, right. I will say this: this year uh, we had a. A, rele- a something that's just doesn't really happen anymore a new horse track or for that matter a greyhound track opened up uh, we had arizona downs open up in arizona now while they did have some issues this year when i went up there to visit them the their weakening o- opening weekend they had great food they had great service they had a kid's area right over next to the grandstands where the parents could be watching their kids and watching the horses run. But the kids were had activities to do. And then now you've got a generation that is at the horse track playing, having fun, playing around. But when they get older, it might be something they'll want to experience. Uh, you go to so many of these tracks today and there's just... Nothing to do, no other excitement, and you're right. The service sucks, um, the, or it, the food is—it's just—it's well, okay, but yeah. it's not twenty dollar uh, nachos, maybe two dollar nachos, but <laughs> it's not worth twenty bucks. Um, now, our, our next little uh, question, and ver- I found this very—it's uh, a very interesting topic because last week we had uh, on our show uh, Vince Francia, general manager from Turf Paradise. And one of the things we're doing here in Arizona is we are, every time there's an injury, there is a meeting held, and they try to start looking at what happened, why did this happen, and so we can document and start seeing if there's any patterns, and one of the things that we came out with, obviously last year there was a lot of uh, rain in uh, California and here in Arizona, so... They were doing a lot of what they called seal the track. And for our listeners who do not know, that's they basically come along the track with this hard uh, uh, still that presses the track down, makes it really hard. So when the rain hits, it just goes off, doesn't sink down into the sand. So we had a lot of races where we had the sealed track, which is a very hard track. A lot of the injuries were the next race when the horse ran where it had run on a sealed track and came back and then ran on a regular track surface. And that's when we were having some of our, in, a majority of our injuries. But I know, is there a belief that today race surfaces are too hard and getting a little too fast? We've been talking about
3: hard racing surfaces for 25 years. Uh, um, hard racing services, in my view, are the, w- one of the cornerstone problems with injuries and with, again, it goes back to racetrack management. This is kind of a multi-sided issue. Uh, I've known, I know a lot of people in the industry have, have been involved for a long time. And Louis Roussel, who used to own and operate the fairgrounds down in New Orleans racetrack, he was uh, a racetrack owner-operator, and he was also a trainer and an owner. And Louis Roussel uh, trained some really nice horses over the years. He trained a horse named Risen Star back in the 80s. Who was the favorite for the Derby. Ran second, I believe, uh, in his year. And I think that was 1980. So we're going back a little ways. But I knew Louis Roussel well into the late 90s. And I asked him about racing surfaces and hard racing surfaces and fast times. Because, you know, fast times don't mean anything. It's simply a calling card that the racetracks have adopted to use as, wow, look at this. New track record. Look at the time. And Louie said to me, Clint, one of the things you need to understand about racetrack management is this. Racetrack management, they like fast times. They like speed-biased racetracks because they believe it is easier for the patrons to handicap speed and cash a ticket. He says, I don't believe in that. I don't think that's true, but that's the prevailing belief out there. And when I thought about it, I thought, you know, that probably is right, even if they don't know what they're doing as far as being their core belief, that's what they have come to believe, and that's what what the uh, prevailing wisdom is. It's not horse friendly. If it's wagering friendly or if it's track friendly, fine. But that doesn't, that doesn't keep your horses sound and coming around a long time. The object of handicapping is to figure out who's going to win. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that horse players are looking for, you know, you know one-size-fits-all because that reduces payoffs. That keeps odds low because if, if you've got two speed horses in the race and the rest are not – then all the money's on one or two horses there 's no way to find value anywhere exactly you 've got to have a track you 've got to have a track that 's fair you 've got to have a track that a horse can come from off the pace, a horse can win on the lead. a horse can be a stalker and still win. Slow these horses down, make them come back to run another day. They will come back and run another day, and you also get the collective issues of racing over these tracks and training over these tracks that are too hard. So when you start to race and train over a track that's too hard, those issues begin to multiply against you and the horses, rather than multiply for your longevity and long-term uh, uh, health and well-being. So it it starts working wildly against you. Race tracks wear out; dirt wears out. Ask any farmer. You have to add organic soil, sand. Different materials back to race tracks. You need to plant. You can plant winter wheat in the off season in the winter. You can plant a summer crop if you're a winter track, and plow that stuff back in. Slow the horses down. They'll always last longer that way. Now, there's always going to be other issues that you have to deal with and manage. It's not just one thing and one thing only, but slow slowing horses down. I guarantee you it goes back to the old adage that speed kills. Speed is not the long-term best friend to any horse or any trainer, no matter what anybody says. It is a negative on the industry.
2: You know, if you even think about NASCAR racing, where they have like the, uh, the those races at the big open tracks, I think like uh, Texas is one, uh, Daytona is the other, and they put the, uh, the carburetor, uh, now I forget what they call on those cars, to slow them down to make it a little safer for them. And I was just going to tell a little story here. Uh, Before Arizona Downs opened up in the Prescott area here in Arizona, the general manager at the track, Ann McGovern, I remember her telling me, she's like, Rory, if we break any speed records up here, any track records, I'm doing something wrong. I want these, you know, I want it safe. I don't want records broken. And Hopefully, more and more general managers will maybe start taking this same approach. And because yeah, we do need to, these horses; do need to run another day, and they will come back another day if we give them a good, safe surface.
3: You, you, you bet. That's exactly right. Now, sealing a racetrack—if I could touch on that for just a second—sealing uh-huh. sealing a racetrack has quite a few benefits in wet conditions. The key to sealing a racetrack is you need to make sure that you've got good surface. All the way down in other words if you have a see they've gotten to where racetrack surfaces are two and a half inches now at the most it used to in years back racing surfaces used to be four and five inches deep so you had a whole lot more cushion to work with but if you take the floats and you seal the racing surface in advance of rain what you're doing is you're allowing the water to kind of run off the top and protect the footing underneath The cushion is not gone, you've just compacted the top maybe half to three quarters of an inch, maybe even an inch. You've compacted that and allowed the water to run off. So the surface is more safe without being slick and sticky underneath. Then during the races, what you do is you come back and you reseal it, but you're not pressing it down to concrete. You're just sealing the top uh, layer and pressing off the water. The surface underneath and the cushion that remains is still safe, but you're keeping it from getting saturated, slick, and sticky, which creates new problems. So, if management is handling their surface correctly, sealing racetrack should not be an issue. Now, they use these the rain and the excess water and the excess you know uh, issues this winter in California to me as purely an excuse for lack of insight, knowledge, and racetrack management. Their surfaces are worn out. They're shot. They're not deep enough. They need new soil. They need new material. Drainage is not your issue. Its depth of surface is your complete issue.
2: Exactly. Um, And I had actually even heard that in California, one of the tracks that has been named a lot in um, horse deaths, they actually took some of the surface off because there was... Some stables wanting to have faster time, so I'm guessing that they might be able to then sell horses at a higher price because they've got speed records. That's just what I've heard. And
1: Which you, kind you, of you, negates you know, itself because if you're r- running a horse too fast and you have an accident, you you're not going yeah, to <laughs> get anything for that horse if you try to sell it because yeah. you well, can't.
3: Kathy, you're, you're, you're exactly right, but, but that's yet. Yeah. Fast times, track records, all go back to, towards the commercial breeding aspect, and in terms of paging, a whole different chapter. That's a problem as well. Commercial breeding, you know, the the, the legacy breeders of the years ago, that you know, the great you know stables and breeders from Kentucky and Florida, they've largely dissipated, and eighty percent, eighty five percent of the horses now are bred for sales rings and for catalog pages, and for two-year-old and training sales. And we mm-hmm. created all this fake black type, too many stakes races, too many graded stakes races. They're not special like they used to be. So when everybody's a graded stakes winner, nobody's a graded stakes winner, but it all looks good on the catalog page. Fast times, track records, graded stakes, black type, as they call it in the sales rings. It looks great. It sells horses. But you're selling something that's not really real.
0: Right. You're
3: selling kind of fake impressiveness when you do that, and uh, they love that stuff. They love the fast times. But as you just said, Kathy, they're they're not looking at the flip side. It's it's greedy commercial breeders that are embracing this. It's sales companies that are embracing this. It's consigners who are promoting this. And it is a—it's a massive negative for the industry in the grand scheme of things. It's a short-term thing, but it fails the long-term picture.
1: You know, for me, horse racing—my major influence, of course, has been the movies and what you see in both new and old films—is that that nobleness that that just desire that that beauty was there a time in american horse racing where that was the way it was or was that just a myth
3: no there was a time like that Now, you know we've all got to be a little careful of glamorization of anything it doesn't matter what it is and, and whenever you look back through history things tend to get a little glossy and you know a little fuzzy and you get euphoric over nostalgia so we have to always you know measure that and remember how it truly was but yes there was a different day in a different era where horse racing was a noble thing it was an event it was a special kind of a grand scheme uh sport and while that has really slipped away It can and could be recaptured, but it takes an industry effort. No one person is going to be able to do that. Now, you can lead by example, and I'm a firm believer of leading by example, but the industry will never get together in lockstep and do that because everyone is protecting what they view as their own interests and their own, I'll just call it, fiefdoms. Nobody wants to yield or cede any control over their thing to a larger effort. In other words, you can't just get up one morning and say, "I'm going to start an NFL franchise and start playing NFL teams or Major League Baseball." Same way, right. in the horse racing world, you can just apply for dates, get them, break ground, open, get a meet, and horses will show up. Yep, theoretically, there's no, there's no um, franchise. There's no, uh, you don't have to meet a certain standard when it comes to entry into the horse racing world, that's a mistake. There needs to be some consistency in what's being put forth. But yes, there used to be that. And yes, it could come back, but it's going to either need to be... If you lead by example and you are successful, the entry will see it. And I believe they will jump on board because they'll follow the success and they'll follow the money. But it's going to take a big effort by someone who's Willing to,
2: to spend the time, effort, and money and do it. Exactly. And
1: that's always the big well, and I, you issue. Know,
2: on the Greyhound side, I've always been and there's been a few others that said the Greyhound industry needed a commissioner. You got too many individuals doing whatever the hell they want and have just kind of driven the sport to to where we are today. But with that said, we're now gonna take a commercial break will be right after right back after these messages.
0: Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, depression, Show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? (laughs) Decide that you have something to say and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you like sweet, if you like bass, if you like love, it's gonna last. The Greyhound pets are definitely they pick you up with one or two. So if you call the G.P.A. They'll help you out. So call the day. That's Greyhound Pets. The G.P.A. G.P.A. That's Greyhound Pets. The G.P.A. 800-366-1472. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: We are listening to greyhounds make great pets with rory tj and kathy to find out more about the show and what we do please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com that's gmgp3 at yahoo.com now back to greyhounds make great pets
1: thank you mr announcer guy i'm kathy i'm here with rory you guys out in listener land, or whoever you all are. And we are also here with our guest, horse trainer, jockey, and author, and just really cool conversationalist, Clint Goodrich. And we're talking horses and stuff. Exactly.
2: Now, before we get into a couple of other subjects, I did want to kind of talk a little bit, because I've had some people, because when they found out I was a racing commissioner, they were always asking me my opinion. And with the Kentucky Derby this year uh, with what happened there I just wanted to you know everyone has asked me I always tell them I believe the stewards made the right call and if the Kentucky Derby was actually the Arizona Derby and they had brought it appealed it to the racing commissioner there's I'm pretty sure I would have voted to uphold the stewards rulings cuz I do believe they did what was in the best interest of horse racing and I'm just kind of curious uh, Clint your opinion about what happened there and uh, did, did the stewards do right by horse racing?
3: You know, Roy, uh, I wrote a blog post about the Kentucky Derby uh, situation. I wrote it on Sunday, I wrote it on Saturday night, published it on Sunday morning on my blog, where uh, the wherethepindrops.com. And my blog post got shared on Facebook in three days about 22,000 times.
0: Holy cow. And I had a hundred,
3: yeah, on Facebook. 22,000 times, I had 100,000 hits on my blog page on this um, blog post, and my contention was this from the jump. The stewards made the exact right call because they followed the rules as written, and it took courage that I can't really describe for them to do that. They took heat like you can't believe And the courage it took to make that call was so commendable because it was the correct call. It was the right call. Now, I know the the head steward in Kentucky, the state steward in Kentucky personally, Barbara Borden. I've known her since the early 80s. She is the most fair, good person. She's one of the best racing officials I ever worked under in any state I ever participated in and I participated in I don't know 20 different racing jurisdictions around the country over the years maybe yeah at least 20 and Barbara Borden it, it, she's one of the best and her and, and Butch B. Craft um, I, I know them both they are fantastic racing officials and I don't always say that because I've seen some very shoddy racing official um, uh, action. I've seen some real wishy-washy officiating from the stewards' stand. Uh, they did the right thing. They, uh, Luis Ciez has a history of this. His history, who wrote you know, uh, The Winner, he has a history of this. Max, he wrote Maximum Security. Who wrote the, you know, right. the horse that crossed the finish line first. He has a history of this. No one has held his feet to the fire particularly strongly like they should. The horse should have come down. All the other noise that was being made around all the excuses about um, the first turn, the far turn, spooking from the infield. It's the Kentucky Derby. Jockeys, you have to control your horses. You are professional race riders. You must control your horse. You can't control your horse. There are consequences. That's why you're paid. That's why you're riding in this event. It was the right call completely the right call. And I believe they set a standard for... I believe they set a standard. They renewed the standard and have reissued permission for stewards around the country to start making tough decisions fairly based on the rules. And the recent disqualification in New York in the Jockey Club Gold Cup, I believe, is another reflection of that, where Code of Honor got put up over uh, uh, Vino Dasso. And I believe that was the right call as well. But a lot of the times in the past, stewards have been woefully intimidated to make changes in these graded stakes. The rules are the rules. It doesn't matter if it's a $5,000 claimer or a $500,000 or a $3 million race. You follow the rules. You put these riders on notice that the rules are going to be followed. Chips fall where they may.
2: Yep.
1: Do you feel that popular opinion or the voice of social media, want of a better phrase, is greatly influencing just follow the rules?
3: I think social media has opened up a whole can. I, I don't want to say a can of worms because I don't think it's a negative thing. I think it's an interesting thing. You've got people chiming in via a method that didn't exist heretofore. Social media became the norm. So I think it's helping I think horse racing could leverage this because it's 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 getting people engaged. I was truly shocked that my blog post got the attention it got from as many people as it got. Now it was on both sides of the, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
3: of the decision. It was probably 50-50 really. There's a great issue that this is back to horse racing, not putting out a message, not getting a message out. People don't understand the rules. They don't understand how and why the stewards came to the decision they came to. And then the other side of it is, well, I've seen this happen before and, and, and the horse didn't get taken down. They don't see consistency and they're correct. But officiating in all sports is always subject to opinion. It's like the high strike and the low strike. It's like pass interference. It's roughing the passer. It's intentional grounding. You know, that's part of the culture of sports. So there's always going to be that area of disagreement with the call, whatever it is. But they need to get the message out and get people to understand that it's not that the horse behind the horse that was interfered with. That horse wasn't going to win, probably, but that's not how the rule is written. You change the rules. That's okay. But get the rules out there, get the message out there, so that the public, so that your customer understands why this happened and what to expect in the future.
2: That's the key. Exactly. Yes, definitely. So some really good information there. Now I know um, you wanted to maybe talk a little bit about uh, training sales. Uh, can you dive into that a little bit? Sure, can two-year-old and training sales
3: are an outgrowth of what we talked about earlier. Speed. Um, it, it was an area that was underexploited that became exploited. It started getting popular. I mean, they've been around for a while, but starting getting popular in the eight. You know, really getting popular in the eighties in the early 80s, middle 80s. Interior and training sales revolve around speed. They revolve around getting horses ready to run quickly. There's a lot of need in society for instant gratification, uh, especially when the legacy breeders, the people that were the foundation of horse racing for decades and decades, raised horses through their four, five, six, seven years eight-year-old year because they loved to race. They would give horses some time off. They would bring them back. Well, the instant gratification society that has taken over, they want action today. And if not today, yesterday. So the two-year-old and training sales are basically selling horses that are theoretically ready to run the day after you buy them. Well, many, many, many horses are not hooked up like that. Many different pedigrees aren't hooked up like that. Different individual horses are not meant for that. Their pedigrees suggest it. Their maturity or lack of maturity will dictate whether they're ready to run at two or three or in April or October. So two-year-olds are a one-size-fits-all thing in the two-year-old and training sales world. And the key thing there is they want to see how fast they can go on show day, two or three days before they sail. So they zing these horses an eighth of a mile or a quarter of a mile in 10 and 4 or 20 and 4 or 21 flat. Well, that doesn't mean this horse is a quality horse. It doesn't mean this horse can win races. It just means he, he can go fast. Well, almost any can go fast without competition. But can they persevere through a stretch battle can they go two turns can they can they do something in a in a class of horse that supports a high value without just a fast one furlong or two furlong workout in other words getting these horses ready to 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 work out fast before they sell doesn't have anything to do with their success rate at the racetrack but in fact it's really hard on them and ready to do that Two-year-old and training sales have more negative impact on horses than two-year-old racing does. It's the act of getting these horses ready to go fast in advance of these sales, for months in advance of these sales, that create damage and problems and issues that you can't undo. Almost every horse that I received over the years that was prepared for a two-year-old in training sale that came to me, I had to back off of them, unwind them, or address problems that they arrived to me with that they should not have encountered at that point. Material and train sales are the worst possible thing for the thoroughbred horse racing industry going forward. And in fact, I think to get rid of them would be a smart move. Now, breeders won't like that. Consigners won't like that. But I don't care. Because they don't run the business. They participate in the business. They can figure out another way to participate in the business. And you know what? If you had two-year-old racing that started in July or August, these February, March, April two-year-old training sales would go away because they wouldn't have the placement in the calendar any longer. Those horses don't need to be doing that at that time in their life. If a two-year-old starts in July or August, that's fantastic. It still gives them the opportunity to participate in the Breeders' Cup if they're good enough, it gives them the opportunity to participate in, in stakes races if they're good enough down the line in the fall. I mean, you know, if a two-year-old runs three or four times, that's fine. If he runs one or two times, that's fine. Or if he doesn't run at all, that's fine, too. It should be a determination that's made with the owner and trainer of, of this horse or that horse as to what is in their best interests. And I'll say this to all the owners out there. If you're going to hire a trainer to train your horse... I don't care if you paid $10,000 for him, or a $1,100,000 for him. If you are not willing to listen to your trainer's advice, you need a new trainer. Don't hire him in the beginning. If you don't trust him, do not hire him. If you hire him and think enough of your horse to turn him over to him or her as a trainer, listen to their advice. Do not put pressure on your trainer to run your horse, because that gets transferred Right from the owner to the trainer, right through to the horse. There's no way around it. Don't do it.
2: Wow. Some really good advice there. Now, there's there's another topic here um, we'll just dive right into. And, I, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. You, you've, you're calling them somewhat the same thing I've been calling them for years. Um, these animal rights activists, um, I've been calling a lot of them terrorists for years just mainly because of their tactics. But... Um, you know kind of tell us your thoughts on on these people these uh, um, animal liberation front the PETAs and all that Um, do they really have power over us or are we just letting them walk all over us you know my YouTube channel is called don't get me started
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh we gotta tune that one uh, in (laughs) yeah
3: yeah I just started my YouTube channel a, a, a little while ago, so it's starting to pick up some steam, and, and I'm going to start accelerating on this more as we go along. Um, the animal rights activists are uh, a joke. They're not, they don't care about animals. These, these people are a joke. These are political activists. They're raising money for their own causes, and the animals are simply a conduit for their own personal enrichment and cause. Now, I think at the grassroots level, a lot of people believe that they are animal rights activists and they they follow along. But these animal rights activists organizations, they are simply preying on people's emotions and fears, and they fundraise off of that. Now, a lot of people follow them because they don't really understand what they are at the core. Animal rights activists at the core are simply wizards of Oz. <laughs> Now, if you've watched the movie, you know that in the final scene of The Wizard of Oz, everyone finds out that the wizard is simply a guy behind a curtain. It's all smoke and mirrors. Yep. And the, 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 these people, do, they do not have power. No one has bestowed power to them. They seize it unchecked. In a silent room, a whisper is the loudest voice. In horse racing, it's basically been a silent room. I'm not as familiar with the dog racing world as you, but you'll probably agree with that. Yep. These, these people, they do not really have power. They take it, and they, they convince others that they have power. Therefore, they do. They scream a lot. They're well-funded. They make a lot of noise, and they threaten. Somebody said to me, well, PETA will negotiate, but horse racing wrongs won't negotiate. And I said, what are you talking about? Negotiate. They have no. They have no position in this equation. How are they negotiating? And what are they negotiating with, for, and with whom? They have no place in this arrangement. They have simply inserted themselves into it, and people are giving them uh, attention. These people prey on attention. They fear emotions and beat them, to ignore, them. starve them from what they need, and that is attention. Their nutrition is attention. Starve
2: them to death.
3: Ignore them. Boot them out. Do not entertain them. Not even
2: like negotiating with terrorists. Exactly. I mean, do not have power. Exactly. I I mean, I was really frustrated when I was reading some articles about uh, Santa Anita and that they had invited, apparently they were having meetings with PETA, and then uh, the Horse horse Racing Commission over in California is letting them get up and give their spiel at their meetings. It's like, these are people who have, I've been going with, they have no say, they have no seat at the table. They do not know anything. And I I just, I do want to bring this up because I just had to laugh this morning when I was reading some news story about, I guess, a judge in California um, denied, I guess PETA wants to do a protest. And PETA was demanding that they be allowed on the track. Now, again, the track is private property, and a lot of the track is under jurisdiction of the racing folks over there. The judge denied it, and they're all ticked off about that. Guys, you have no right to be on private property, nor do you have any rights to be in an area that's ju- uh, under the jurisdiction. Uh, who knows what you're going? You guys are going to do the horses, and there has I had, do have a belief that they are well would would do harm to the animals to further their cause.
1: Exactly, and there have been I think dog shows yeah. in California. Well, I'm not sure if they were. Uh, any time of lure coursing or just a show, but my understanding was uh, their people had come in and just opened the crates of the dogs that were waiting to participate. Um, if you, in, you know, for people who preach for goodness to animals and safety and, and, and treat them right, any human that would threaten physically or verbally another human or an animal has no right, as Rory said, to be at the table. Yeah.
3: Well, that is the definition of terrorism, right there. Exactly, and the, these people will do anything. This is a, this is kind of a culture and cult that they are in, uh, that they follow, and they're like they're like eco terrorists, animal rights activists, or terrorists in their own right. Uh, this is a real but they are attained a a level here a place in this equation because people are afraid of them and you've got to understand they have no power, real power so they don't have a seat at the table as you mentioned, don't give them one, don't acknowledge them they are inserting themselves where they don't belong and um, you only empower them
2: we acknowledge them exactly and i know i had mentioned this last week on the show and i'm going ahead and saying again um, the california governor um, who pretty much wants to shut down horse racing and i do will convey this message again to the governor sir if you really want to be humane why don't you worry about all the homeless people you have on the streets of la san francisco and many other cities take care of your homeless people first Horse racing, we've got it. Stay out of something you don't need to get yourself involved in. Take care of the people first. Show that you're humane.
3: Could not agree with you more 100% uh, exactly right. They, see, they don't understand. They don't want to understand it is politics and politicians respond to who, who funds them. Yep. And these, these people are well-funded. Horse racing, and, and I'll say this for sure, horse racing, you're talking, we're talking about management and stuff. The industry, this is the problem, the industry is not organized. The industry needs to have lobbyists. Lobbyists are a part of big business. I don't like it, you don't like it, but it's a fact of life. The horse racing industry needs to have a voice in Washington, D.C., in California, in New York, in Florida, in Arizona, in New Mexico, in Illinois. They need to have people, they need to have their cost of doing business. Exactly, You have to have representation in these issues in order to counter those that are well-funded who would do you harm. It's on you. We have to do it. It's the silent room again. When you're in a silent room, a whisper is the loudest voice, and we are too silent. We need to counter these activities from within. It's completely doable. Those people shut up and go away quickly when they're countered. Effectively,
2: right. Well, and when they're um, challenged to a real debate with people that might ha- be educated enough to counter them, they refuse to show up. They they want to control the message, and in in reality, they're nothing but chicken shit when it comes to the real discussion. Um, I, I, right. It's it just You're frustrating. Right. Uh, but anyways, I, I it I, absolutely is. I, I do think we're going to have to have you on the I, show again. But, yeah. um, Clint, why don't you go ahead and mention your um, the pin drop and also your uh, YouTube channel again for our listeners?
3: Yes, my blog is called Where the Pin Drops, all, all together, where the pin is how you can find it. And my YouTube channel is called Don't Get Me Started. You can just go on YouTube and search for Don't Get Me Started. Um, and you'll find me there. As soon as I get enough su- subscribers, I'll be able to get the URL that's associated with that, but they have a threshold yet. All right. uh, I'm still not quite at the threshold yet, but don't get me started on YouTube and where the pin drops.com is my blog. And, um, uh, got a lot of uh, good content there that, uh, if you're interested uh, take a look.
2: All right. Well, we I think we will get you started again because I think we're going to have you on the show again someday. Because I our wanna, show yeah. has got to
1: stop. Right. I
2: want to <laughs> thank Clint for joining us today. Aaron, our engineer, another fantastic job. Tacy, our producer, thank you. Everyone, hug the hounds, horses of the world. Have a wonderful weekend.
0: Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goree, TJ Beter, and Kathy Goree for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.